Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. And in my mind, I was going, well, actually, the 40,000 ones, just haven't got a clue what they're, they're talking about. They clearly don't understand our requirement because how in the hell could you think it, you're going to meet our need for, for that price, basically? Economists argue this is the main purpose that price serves, is it allows us to compare dancing lessons with a fruit basket. One of these times you're going to introduce this story and say, I used to work for the British Secret Service, and it's going to just change everything that everyone was expecting. So, Ryan, love it when we get a message in from one of our listeners. Always nice to hear. Absolutely. The question that we're addressing today is from Darren, uh, and Darren listened to the podcast that we did a few weeks ago about pricing. He is in a B2B, although this doesn't necessarily just relate to business to business, and he was asking the difference between pricing for a service and pricing for a product. Mm. And as you are the guru on pricing, I thought to myself, Ryan, know the answer to this one. And I'd be happy to answer, but of course, I'm going to have to charge you for that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, hold on. Let me, let me, if you're charging for that answer, is that a product or a service? uh, That is a good question. It's a, it's a service, but I'd be happy to give you some kind of trinket also along with that. All right. Okay. The first question is an interesting question, isn't it? Really? Actually, well, my first question is, what's the difference then between a product or a service? Because we obviously are are a B2B company. Sure. We help organizations improve their customer experience, and therefore we charge a price. On one side of it, I can go, well, we're selling a service, but also internally we talk about products, but are the products actually the service and so on and so forth? I've worked with you with clients where part of that service delivery includes, for example, a training manual, which is much more of a product than a service. So it is a good question. Any introductory marketing class that you take, there will be a page in the textbook or a slide in one of the presentations that where they'll have some table or chart that lists off the differences between products and services. You know, products are tangible, services are intangible, products are enduring, services are consumed at the point of creation. They don't exist beyond that, right? There's this whole list of things. What's interesting to me, kind of more philosophically, is there's been this trend, and customer experience is a consequence of this trend, but there's been a trend in marketing to treat more and more things like they were services, even if they're products. So if you're selling laundry soap, marketers will talk about the experience of using the laundry soap and that that makes the product kind of servicey. So there is this distinction. They have these different characteristics. Some of them affect pricing. In fact, we'll talk about one of those next. 
but for me, it, it's useful to to think about everything from an experience standpoint, which make tends to make things start to seem a little bit more like services, even if they're pretty producty. It was a long way for me to not answer your question. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that sounded like I was back at school, and I'm me sitting there thinking, "Hold on, I've just started off at the same place. I've just just seen gone round in circles for the last five minutes." I mean, we all have our strengths, Colin. <laughs> Academic gobbledygook is really, it's really where I shine. Let's talk about one of these, though. This is not true of all services. There are some services that are kind of rote and replicable, but many services are more unique. So, for example, you, when Beyond Philosophy goes and meets with a client, you're creating a custom solution, right? Yep. A lot of enterprise-level software, they'll have some kind of basic package, but then there's a lot that needs to be customized to interface with other software that they have and with other systems that they have. So one thing that's different about many products from many services is that a lot of times the services are more difficult to compare across options, I mean, we have a framework of offerings that we would have. And I don't want to turn this into a, this is what we do. But we have a five or six different services that we would go, okay, you need to define what your customer experience is. You need to define what drives value, et cetera. Now, absolutely, there are, what's the word I'm looking for? We customize those to each of the customers. But you would still define that as a service, would you? If it's non-tangible, if it's kind of consumed at the time of delivery, if it meets all these other criteria, then yeah, that would typically tend to be viewed as a service as opposed to as a a product. But like, even if you have a framework for developing the offering that you would pitch to the client, if the client is talking to several customer experience consultancies, the pitches that they're going to get are going to be so radically different. Yeah that it's going to be very difficult for them to compare those offerings. You can't compare apples with apples. If I want to buy a forklift, there's going to be differences across the different forklift providers. Sure. But, you know, they've all got four wheels and two forks. And I mean, you know, sure, it's, it's going to be easier to compare. So that's going to matter for pricing. The good and the bad of it from the, the company's perspective is there's the opportunity to make something unique in such a way that it breaks down pricing barriers, right? So if your organization is the only one offering this unique specialized component of the service, then that just might put you in a different category. And now you, you'd be able to charge a lot more and the customer is just not going to be willing to give up that unique part of that service. Yes. The con for you as an organization is price is the universal equalizer in terms of comparing things that economists argue this is the main purpose that price serves is it allows us to compare dancing lessons with a fruit basket because they have this universal metric of price and so that that if if services are really unique and difficult to compare then a lot of times customers will fall back on that price and really really utilize that to make their decisions and make their evaluations. And that then is bad for you from a pricing perspective, because that means that the lower price is going to tend to be more compelling in settings like that. Yeah, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because from a top level, and again, I'm just speaking about us, what we are doing is we're saying, 
we will improve your customer experience. Mm -hmm. Other organizations will go in there and say the same thing at a top level. Mm -hmm. Company A or B, one company could be double the price of the other company. So I guess it then goes down to a belief. You go back into this value, don't you? Which is, who do you believe? Let me give you an example from my past. I used to work, as people will know, I keep saying this, but I'm going to stop stop myself repeating this, but I used to work in corporate life. One of these times you're going to introduce this story and say, I used to work for the British Secret Service, and it's going to just change <laughs> everything that everyone was expecting. I don't think the British Secret Service will be interested in difference between services and pricing. That's product. your cover, Colin. <laughs> they never expect it. Yeah, it, it's when I drink the martini shaken, not stirred, that uh, gives it away, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd love one of those Aston Martins that he drives around. I forgot what he said again. Now. When you worked in your cover oh, in that's corporate right. yes. life. I was in training. I was uh, dealing in sales management training. We were implementing a big training program. And we went out to three different organizations to find out the cost of their training program. So effectively, we were going okay, well, we're trying to improve our sales managers. We want to make them more effective. And therefore, what could you offer? The The thing that made me think about this was there was one organization that basically came in at a price of about, I don't know, 40,000. The other two organizations came in at a price of about 300,000. And in my mind, you know, I was going, well, actually, the 40,000 ones just haven't got a clue what they're they're talking about because it's just so far out of kilter they clearly don't understand our requirement because how in the hell could you think it you're going to meet our need for for that price basically excellent yeah so there are a couple of implications of this this idea that services are difficult to, to compare often not always but often are difficult to compare against other offerings that's exactly one of them so one of the implications is that because we, we're relying on price, we'll really use price to do a lot of the work for us. So it's very common for us to in, infer quality from price, but it's especially likely if, if it's difficult for us to evaluate on other dimensions. So, you know, you're getting this, this service that's being pitched to you. And then, like you said, one was like drastically lower price than the other ones. And the conclusion that you drew was exactly that. Like these guys clearly do not know what they're doing. There's no way they'd be able to provide the service level that we need. And so you're eliminating them for that reason. That's one of the implications of this is that people are going to really rely on price to infer quality because it's all they've got. And by definition, it actually also infers expectation, doesn't it? Yes. As you were just saying this, it was I was thinking at the opposite end. So if someone was a million dollars, someone was three hundred thousand, and someone was forty thousand, you would infer that the million dollar is going to be the better solution, and your there expectations. Better be no problems. Yeah. If you go with that one. It's going to be a much better solution if I'm spending that. And the irony is, I guess that the 40,000 could be doing the job. <laughs> this is part of what is so difficult. Like if it's a service, it's really difficult to evaluate it beforehand because it doesn't exist beforehand. If you're buying a, a forklift, you know, you, you might not be able to, to use it extensively, but 
you can go out and kick the tires. Like you can evaluate it to a certain extent. If it's a service, it doesn't exist yet. And so it can be very, very difficult for you to evaluate it. So you, you rely on price. Another implication of this idea that it's difficult to compare services is it's especially important then for you to provide reference points that allow people to evaluate these things. So if you can say normally a service like this would be $50,000, but because of this and because of that and because of this other thing, we're going to offer it to you for $42,000 instead. The fact that you've provided that reference point of $50,000 is going to be especially influential because people, again, they don't have good ways of evaluating these things otherwise. And that's the anchor point, basically. Yeah, exactly. So you're you're establishing an anchor for them, you're establishing a reference point, and then they're going to evaluate that relative to this thing because it's hard for them to compare across offerings. Yeah. So within the offering, the more reference points you can give them for evaluating things, the easier it'll be for the customer. The other interesting part then, isn't it, is that when you are then offering a price, you don't know what the customer's anchor point is. Because for all you know, the day before somebody else has gone in there, your price is 100000 and their price is 20000 and they're now anchored at 20000 I had a, a former student tell me that uh, she was working for a brand new, I think it was a, a media marketing consulting firm that they were starting out. They were pitching their first job and were very excited and worked very hard on this pitch. And did a great job, but apparently came in embarrassingly low. And and the company that wanted to hire them said, look, we want to hire you, but your price is just embarrassingly low. You you need to like triple that and then we'll hire you. So (laughs) you'll occasionally- Oh, can you give me their address, please? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is an instance where this is the reverse of what usually happens, where the company actually had more experience in this market than this brand new agency. They saw some value in kind of fostering the success of this agency for whatever reason. Usually it's the agency that has more experience. So when you call in with Beyond Philosophy, go into to pitch work, you have a lot more experience in customer experience, kind of design and consulting. And so the company that's evaluating your offer is, is in a much worse place. That's typically the, the place, but it, it can occasionally be the reverse where the consultant or the service provider actually has less experience in this area. I have to tell you, it was one of the biggest problems that we had at the beginning of Beyond Philosophy 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, of w- Was just going, how much do we charge? Yeah, what are, what are our services worth? I always remember the we were in um, Africa. This was the family. And we went down to, we were staying at this hotel in Gambia, I think it was. I went down to look around the shops and we went into this one shop and they saw this they had these wooden sculptures, which we particularly liked. And we started to, how much is this? And being that type of environment, they started to haggle. Yep. And they said, how much are you, are you willing to pay? And blah, 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 blah. And we started to haggle. And we ended up buying this piece. We thought, oh, we've got a really good deal here. And we went back into the hotel, and it was a nice hotel. And obviously, the hotel shops tend to be more expensive. We went back into the hotel only to find out that there was the same piece there for half the price that we just paid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what I realized was the problem was through that whole bartering process was it was the first number that came out of my lips was the anchor point. They knew then that they had me, basically. That's exactly it. This was obviously a product. This was some kind of 
wooden carving, but it was service-like in that you had no idea what it was worth. No. And so in situations like that, whether it's a product or service, it's more common with services. We're really reliant on outside information to even give us a clue. How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. Another example that's similar, so we rely on reference points. We also rely on just kind of external contextual factors. So I know that's a little abstract. I was once talking about pricing with a group of lawyers Um, They invited me to their professional conference to talk about pricing. And I gave them this example. I said, you in this room know how much you charge to set up a trust. So, you know, set up some kind of trust fund that's a legal entity and you need a lawyer to help you construct it. I and many lay consumers have no idea how much that costs. Like is, is setting up a trust something that should cost me $40 or something that should cost me $1,000 or more? I have no idea. I've never done it before. So if I see that a lawyer is charging $800 to establish a trust, how do I know whether that's a good price or not? And so what I did then is I showed them two pictures of law offices. One was kind of very approachable. It was in a a small building. There was, you know, a white picket fence in front of it. And, you know, it looked very friendly. And the other one was this sleek corporate lawyer office with lots of chrome and glass. And I said, if you didn't know how much a trust cost and you walked into this lawyer's office and they said, well, it's $800. And you walked into this lawyer's office and they said, it's $800. What inferences are you drawing about that price based on the environment they're in. And they all agreed that if you walked into this homey, small law office and they said $800, then you would assume, oh, that must be a very good price for that because this lawyer's not going to overcharge me. If you got the same price at this super high-end law firm, you're going to assume, well, that, that must be a really outrageously high price, right? Because you draw inferences from the surrounding environment. It's the same with services. When we are are getting a service, we often don't have those reference prices. And so we need to draw from the environment to evaluate that. Yeah, that's really interesting then, isn't it? Because what you're really talking about there are the subconscious clues that you're being given. And that helps you evaluate the price. That's exactly right. Nobody's making the conscious decision that they're using these cues to help them evaluate price. But instead, when we're in situations where it's difficult for us to evaluate things, we start looking for other means of making those evaluations. And the contextual cues, the environment that you're in, how professional the team looks, all these kinds of things can influence the way that you evaluate those prices, especially for services. Which is interesting in itself, actually, because it's making me start to think of reception areas. Yes, 
you remember I've told you that story about us pitching for some business and me asking them, they were having a reception area refurbished and I asked them, well, how much revenue are they going to gain from that? But the reality, I guess, is that they would gain some revenue because it, it actually, how the reception area looks influences the price that they would then charge. I don't know whether or not it would gain them revenue because it could do the opposite. It could turn the people off. So yeah, if, good point. if you get a price, a reasonable price from an office that has some super high-end reception area, you could assume that that's a, a really high price and therefore decide not to go with them because it looks too fancy. On the other hand, there are instances too where a really fancy reception area might cause you to think that this is a really high quality offering. And then therefore you would choose it for that reason. So again, it's the clues that you are using. What I was then thinking about is budget airlines who subconsciously message to you that they are doing everything they can to cut the cost effectively. Yes. If you want to pay by credit card and you're buying online, then you pay more money and those types of things. It's all a subconscious message, isn't it? That they're cheap. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm of the opinion that a lot of the price evaluations we make have very little to do with the actual prices and instead have a lot to do with the context. I, I was I was in a Costco with my wife several years ago and, and we walked by the dairy case and I went to go grab some milk and she said, no, no, don't get the milk here. We can get it cheaper at Kroger, which is our neighborhood grocery store. And I said, are you crazy? Like this is Costco. Everything here is cheap. Like obviously the milk is the cheapest milk. And she said, no, I know what the price is at Kroger and it's lower. Sure. So I had made this assumption based on the environment. Like if it's at Costco, of course, it's going to be ridiculously cheap. She actually had better information. And so was able to make a better informed decision. I like your wife. Yeah, well, she's she steers me away from expensive milk and other dumb things <laughs> all the time. It's a, it's a full-time job for her. <laughs> I bet. So there are a couple more of these insights for pricing services. One is that there's a conventional wisdom, which is usually true, around, they call it off pricing or charm pricing. The idea that you want a price ending in a 99 or you want a price just off of round. So 499 feels like a much lower price than 500. And that's generally true. It's a very good rule. It also communicates quality in a way that's opposite to that. So 500 feels like a much higher quality offering than 499. And as we talked about for services, people are especially desperate for these cues to use. So services are one area where round pricing actually might serve you better than off pricing. Right, interesting. The last one that I'll raise for us, there's evidence that counterintuitively, people tend to enjoy things more if they pay for it up front rather than if they pay for it later. This is counterintuitive because we seem to put off payment as long as we can, right? We, we buy things on credit cards and, and we want to push off the payment. That's true. It's also though true that if you have prepaid for something, that the payment is now no longer hanging over your head, that you can just kind of enjoy it. So if you are selling the kind of service that is an experience, Theme park is one example, but you know, in a business-to-business space, if it's some kind of training that the, the people might enjoy, if it's something where 
uh, the experience itself is something that you want people to get something out of, then having people pay for it up front tends to kind of cross that price issue off their their mental books. They don't know, no longer need to worry about it. And they can focus just on the experience itself and they, they tend to enjoy it more. Interesting, because I can see that, but I can also see, again, I'm thinking personally, if I pay for something up front, I then worry that the service that I'm going to get is not going to be what I expect it, it to be. That's interesting. And then I won't be able to complain or whatever. I mean, I don't complain a lot. Believe so this is the theory behind tipping, right? That we want to withhold a part of the compensation until we see what the service is like. I wouldn't say that that is in conflict with this. That is just another issue that is also likely to be true, right? So if we could get you to pay it for it up front, you're likely to enjoy it more. If I get you to pay for it up front, I'm also inducing the risk that you worry about the quality of the service that you would get. I think both of those are true, yeah. If it's, I'm paying to go into a Disney theme park, I can get 10% off or something like that. If I pay before I go there, then great, that's good. But that's probably because I know what it's going to be like. You're confident in the delivery of that service, yeah. The only issue then is, well, what happens if something happens? Recently, I went to rent a car. I decided to pay for it up front, and then we couldn't go. And then I, <laughs> just before I was going, I was thinking, well, nothing's going to stop us going. Of course, then nothing's going to stop us going. But there was something that stopped us going. I guess the overall message of this is it goes back to what we normally say, which is there's never one thing that's happening. It's complicated. There's lots of things that are happening. In terms of helping people navigate that trade-off, as you said, if it is a service that is fairly regimented, that people have a lot of confidence in the quality of, then prepayment might facilitate it. If it's an experience service where people are going to be evaluating the quality of it based on the experience they have during the service, then prepayment might work well. If it's not those conditions, if it's something where people are worried about the the quality that they'll get, then prepayment might not be the best approach. I'm now thinking of talking with procurement departments who never in a month of Sundays would they <laughs> would they agree to pay for <laughs> no. a service. Now, obviously, wrapped in there is cash flow and all that type of stuff. And also a lot of the things they're paying for are not these type of experience services where yeah. my enjoyment of it is going to be a major part of my evaluation of it. And again, I'm thinking about from our client's perspective, if we've got a new client, then whilst they're coming to us and they believe what we're doing, otherwise they wouldn't do it in the first place, there must be an element of doubt of going, well, will these guys actually do what they say they're going to do? Sure. And on the reverse of that, it's interesting thinking about it because we also have had clients who have engaged us towards the end of a financial year and who've then said, actually, can you put your bill in straight away because we want to pay it out of the budget. (laughs) (laughs) And they are effectively paying up front because of that. But they know us and they know the quality of the work and all the rest of it, basically. What does this all mean? So what? The headline advice, anytime we're dealing with pricing, realize that it's a much more complicated issue than it seems up front, because there's all this psychology that goes into how we evaluate prices. When we're talking about pricing services in particular, for both B2B and B2C, 
we're dealing with a space where comparisons are going to be more difficult. People are going to have fewer reference prices. And so therefore, they're going to rely on price more. They're going to rely on price to infer quality. They're going to rely on the environment, these inferences. They're going to rely on, on any reference points that you can give them uh, to guide their evaluations. So recognize all of that. Yeah, I think all of those things are absolutely true, clearly. I think the issue for me is, particularly when it's servicing, the thing I'm I'm taking away from this is it's a bit more nebulous. You can't compare it. For me, again, it's about the type of organization you're dealing with. Price just says so much about you as a company. You can add up the cost of something, and I've talked to different clients about this. You know, there's one thing, which is how much does this service cost us? To make a profit, how much do we need to charge? That doesn't mean to say that's the price that you should go in at. It could be double that. It could be triple that. Because the danger is, is if you go back to my example of earlier, if you charge 40,000 because actually your costs are 35 and you want to make five grand, but you could have actually charged 300,000 and they lost the business because it was 40,000. That's a really key point. Anytime we're dealing with pricing, it's important to know what your costs are because that gives you an internal benchmark. The only thing that matters for pricing is what's it worth to the customer? Yeah. So if they see value out of it at $300,000, then $300,000 is a fair price and a good price. If they don't see value at it out of $40,000, then they're not going to buy it anyway, right? So your costs are important for you to know, but yeah, if you're if you're doing cost plus pricing, for example, that's really not very sophisticated at all because it doesn't it doesn't take the customer's perspective into account. And I think then you get into the whole area of segmentation, don't you? Because Absolutely. You're now going, well, do I think a small standalone business are gonna, you know, if I charge them three hundred thousand, do I think they're going to actually buy it? Nah. If I'm now talking about a multinational corporation that makes a million dollars profit every day or something like that, then would they buy it? Well, yeah, maybe they would. So it's understanding your customers. So thanks very much, everybody, for listening. If I can ask you one favor, just tell one person about the podcast. That would be really good. We're always trying to grow the numbers of people that are listening. So please just think of, is there one person that you think that would find this podcast interesting? And if there is, please tell them. We look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks a lot. See ya. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.